0: Sociology Improv is a podcast of thesocietypages.org. dot
1: John, you should also know there's a, another person online. Oh yeah, yeah. Sorry, I didn't use you, John. My name's Ian. I'm Chris's friend. Hi, hi, Ian. Nice to meet hi. you. Hi. It's nice to meet you.
2: And sorry, uh, your story is you are also a uh, sociologist.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm a grad student at UCSD.
2: Oh, cool. Okay.
1: What do you study? I study conservatives. Uh, I'm an ethnographer.
2: Okay. Man, by conservatives, uh, you mean, like, in
1: general, or... Well, I study the way, uh, within San Diego, how different small groups of conservatives develop competing visions of conservatism, and then how they kind of struggle to impose it upon others. Fascinating. Yeah. Do you want to
3: talk about that, or? You don't have to.
1: No, I mean, I have a spiel <laughs> that I go through, but I probably don't want to talk about it on a
3: podcast. We had a we had a topic request.
1: Topic request,
2: yeah, you kind of so. feel like you got to do that, right?
3: She said, I have no idea if this will be considered a subject appropriate for your sociology improv content, podcast, but I'd love to hear you guys talk about it if you think it's appropriate. This week in Seattle, a group of people called the Black Block proceeded a peaceful... May Day Demonstration, they destroyed cars and smashed windows and businesses, and she links to some coverage of this, and I'm convinced that the most important and dramatic change was made through peaceful protests, and that this sort of violence only hurts the very people you're claiming to help. Someone I was arguing with said that the peaceful protests of the Occupy movement clearly aren't actually doing anything and that we need to start rewarding to violence since the peace tactic isn't working. Which of the two forms of protest do you think has led to the most effective social change? Not just in recent years, but in the past, as with the countrywide revolutions that often end in bloodbaths. I think you could cover things like the French Revolution from way back when, and the Egyptian Revolution that's just happened as part of this analysis.
2: I mean, I think this is kind of like a the wrong way to look at the question, right? I mean, there's... I I don't know. I mean, I I think you can make a very valid argument for how violence has been quite successful in some social movements, social movements that you could argue had a positive outcome. And then there's clearly a lot of examples of nonviolence and that kind of thing. But, I mean, it's kind of a situational question. It's it's kind of like... I mean, it's like a methodology question, right? Like, it, it depends on the context, you know? It's like saying, is ethnography or statistical analysis, the better way to conduct science. I mean, I guess at some level you can make arguments about that, but really I think most people would agree, well, it depends what you're looking at, right?
1: Well, what is violence is something that could be subjective in itself. Definitely. I mean, who gets to determine what becomes a violent act? It's not a a static criterion which certain actions meet in that sense. uh,
2: Yeah, especially if you're talking like the difference between property crime style violence and like physical violence because a lot of times they'll say a demonstration turned violent when some windows got smashed which yeah I guess is a form of violence but not really one that you know I, they're I guess quite different is all so
3: window smashing is violence uh, being pepper sprayed by cops is uh, uh, discipline I don't know yes. oh,
2: it's like what's it violence radical, John.
3: no no well but I mean, that's the other thing is like, just how do you, the underlying question is how do you evaluate the success of any of these tactics or of movements in general is actually a really thorny question, you know, like, uh, can you even generalize that some tactics work more than others in general? Or can you really only point to like specific successful movements that have used the tactics they use to achieve their ends, right? Because there's a lot more failed social movements and protests than there are, ones that made any difference at all. So, right.
2: I, I will say, I I once I read a, a scientific article several years ago now, probably maybe even a decade ago now, um, that w- was making a like statistical claim that over the course of the 20th century, uh, nonviolent demonstrations or, or like nonviolent movements were much more successful than violent ones. But you know, it's a pretty limited sample, and, you know, it also, again, like, how do you qualify the success of that particular movement? So, I mean, I guess there's at least been some attempt to kind of empirically study it, but I don't know that there's, like, the body of evidence there to really say, you know?
0: I think under underwriting the question is also the fact that there's a, a very imprecise definition of social movements, and so we've touched on the semantics a little bit, but there's a sense of social movements in the question as being things like the women's movement, the civil rights movement, the... Gay rights movement, things like that, suffrage movements, as opposed to any social movement because if you if you define it very broadly, then nonviolence definitely wins over. If you start to go to the really massive social movements, then I think there is typically a, a violent component to that at, at varying degrees of severity, but still
1: well yeah you have to consider the the difference between exactly with what a movement is that there are different arms to movements in that sense. Like There may be large, peaceful demonstrations, but at the same time, you can have smaller organizations. I think you talked about this when you were talking about Occupy before.
0: Probably, yeah.
1: Yeah, and how people were upset with Occupy Oakland for being too violent and violating right. the principles. Uh, I mean, this continually comes up. I mean, I think the question is, is a violent act effective? It's just kind of misleading, because it leads you to start to kind of look for essences and acts. Whereas I think like a, a more interesting question might be, When does an act become viewed as violent? And then what is the effect that it has?
2: Yeah, and I was going to say, too, especially, Chris, like, when you're talking about scale, I mean, it it would be pretty hard to imagine, for example, like a revolution, um, like, actually deposing an entire government could happen peacefully. I mean, it's...
0: yeah, I I don't don't want to
2: completely discount it because I have some hope for humanity, but, uh, I mean, I can't think of an example and... uh, even like right, it the certainly seems of revolution hard to
0: involves some people dying and some windows getting broken and yeah, yeah
2: it just because and I mean, really, it's just because you know the state is going to meet you with violence, right? And I mean, man, it's it's pretty hard to imagine you get a big enough group of people committed enough to having like a large number of people die in the course of this peaceful revolution, you know, peaceful on their side at least.
0: Yeah, because let would take the. Oh, go ahead, Jesse.
2: Well, I was just going to say, I mean, because I was thinking, like, historically, I mean, it was, you know, there's the uh, notion that MLK specifically, like, held marches in places where it was likely to be met with a lot of police violence, you know, as a way to engender sympathy for the cause, and certainly, I'm sure that was not a pleasant experience for those people, but it's very different than it would be if they were, you know, trying to overthrow the state, and the state meets you with lethal violence in that situation. Um, It's, I mean, it's one thing to ask people to endure like hey we're probably going to get beaten up and thrown in jail for a week you know but we really need to do this as opposed to saying like hey a good number of you are probably going to die you know
0: <laughs> everyone standing in the front row has a 75 percent chance of getting it yeah that's yeah and then something.
2: especially also to do that in the numbers it would be required of you to have in in okay. a chance of so i mean it's again like so there's a situation where you know even if yeah, even if the movement you know itself is not like intentionally violent, at a certain point, you know, if you get to that scale, you are more or less forced to confront violence in some way.
0: To bring it back to the the local aspect of the question, or the the most recent aspect, which was talking about the rebirth, quote unquote, of Occupy and May Day and um, actions thereabout, then the the cynical but I think truthful answer is that neither the nonviolent nor violent actions have had any effect whatsoever.
2: Oh, man, see, I don't... eh. I feel like we argued a lot about this when we talked about Occupy, so I don't Yeah, I know,
0: I'm just being a jerk about it, but I...
2: Yeah, oh, no, you're definitely a jerk, there's no question about that. eh. Um, Yeah, I mean, in those kind of situations, like in in what our friendly reader was describing, um, I mean, my knee-jerk reaction would be to more or less agree with her, right? That, yeah, that's only going to make you look bad and blah, 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 but, I mean... It's, you know, it's so context-dependent, which I hate to say because that's always the answer to every sociology question. But, I mean, I just feel like you can't, it's, I keep coming back to that methods analogy in my head because it's just like you can't, there isn't one, one doesn't, like, win out. There's a, you know, you got to be a multi-method social activist.
0: That's the thing that I think is surprising in terms of talking about uprisings or rebellions or movements or anything in the public sphere is that the language of a civil rights field versus a civil rights movement versus a civil rights action hasn't really it doesn't have any legs in the in the popular sphere and i think those are very useful terms to make sense of what's going on right now to have different levels of intensity and and a scale and it just helps you conceptualize what's going on and understand the actions more than just there's a movement You know, it's either all nonviolent or all violent, which it's rarely ever the case for any movement of a certain, past a certain size, past an extremely local size. Sure. So that's a concept that people should try and get out there more, I think.
3: I've thought about that a little bit too, because, you know, if you listen to just NPR a lot, they'll talk to, you know, the the, uh, movements in Syria, right? And how there's sort of radical fundamentalist or, you know, religious, uh, groups within that movement. And then there are also like young liberal students within the, within the movement, you know, and like, to what extent, and there's a lot of talk about, to what extent can you talk about this as a unified movement? Do these people agree on anything or do they just sort of agree that the current regime is bad, you know? And they'll talk about that a lot, or at least I've heard, you know, seen several different segments on radio and tv talking about this but you know that they don't talk about it in the terms that um you know social movement people have come up with to think about these things and talk about these things so i don't know if it's just a gigantic failure on the part of uh you know social movement scholars to become go-to people on these topics or what but this is
2: where I really wish Arturo was here so that he could pop in and say, well, you know, I heard this interesting podcast on NPR last week. <laughs> and then I'm sh- it would explain everything we needed to know.
3: Well, maybe he can just, uh, we can have some follow-up next week. And he can, ne- next month, whenever we do this again. I don't know. Well, thanks, thanks for the great question, Karen. I think people should send in questions all the time. It yeah. makes for a lively podcast. And we How could someone it. send in a question, John? You can e- you can email that, podcast at thesocietypages.org.
2: You might want to put, say, something like Soch Improv in the title of your message.
3: That's true, because this massive vampire podcast we have, it might get lost in the shuffle.
2: Or, if you want, you can call us, leave us a message at 612-424-AGIL.
0: You can follow us at Twitter, at Sociology Improv.
2: We will actually start using the Twitter now, so... Give us, like, three days before checking
1: that out. Okay, that gets... I don't actually understand Twitter or (laughs) Tumblr. So if someone does a a hashtag Soch Improv, does that allow them to post
0: on your Twitter feed? No. No, it's just... It's like a a topic that, if enough people do it, will gain traction.
1: Gain traction. So it's not just used in jokes. It's really really kind of...
3: They're kind of silly, actually. You know, I never... I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just missing something, but... So say you have a topic that you want to tweet about, Um, say, I don't know, uh, uh, protests, right? Or sociology improv, you know, like you just said, hashtag sociology improv. You were joking, but let's just take that as an example. Like the whole original idea is that when you're looking at Twitter, like you could, it makes it easy to search for it because you search for, you know, hash sociology improv you're going to find everyone's tweets that have that in there but you can also just search for sociology improv without the hash and find it so it's kind of weird but i guess you know they 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 did this thing now on the website or in all the clients where you can click on the hashtags and then go to searches of all of those you know tweets that mention that hashtag so the hashtags sort of become links and i guess that kind of makes sense so it's kind of a way like for example last night we had some really really nasty weather here um so there's like a, a couple of people that I follow around Kansas City, like weather people, you know, just handy informational stuff to follow. And they all post like KC Storms hashtags. So you can just follow the KC Storms hashtag and hear all these people like, you know, a few miles east of here talking about how horrible the hail is in there. In
0: there. That's when you know you're close to Tornado Alley when you have to follow several <laughs>
3: hashtags <laughs> on Twitter to keep track of the weather. Yeah, but like, I, I mean, that's if we can, um, an example.
0: If we can do like sociology improv, One Direction, we'll get a whole bunch of followers. What? It's a boy band that's blowing up with the tween set, but they dominate. Oh yeah, they're gonna bring the
2: they're gonna bring the boy band back, dude.
0: So if we can just uh, hop on that, we'll get the message about social movements out there.
1: I guess. No, actually, you won't. Uh, (laughs) I just saw a presentation on social movements on Twitter. Oh, really? But I guess when it gets too popular, the feed moves too quickly. And then no one actually gets any information. That makes sense. So you
3: might want to find a less popular uh, bo- uh, boy band, like maybe O
1: Town. <laughs> <laughs> and
3: and the other thing that happens is that like the the stream just becomes polluted with retweets of the same tweets. Yeah. Well, people who don't
0: understand what the hashtag is will just use it to try and get seen. Yeah. It's, I hear it's good for jokes. It's really good for jokes. Yeah. I do. That
2: is the thing I like it for. Is it just makes it like. It basically allows you to make a joke and explain the punchline at the same time.
3: People use it a lot for uh, like sarcasm and stuff too. Like you'll say something and then the hashtag will make it make it clear that you're joking. But
1: uh. so one more time,
2: Dick Cheney hashtag. I'm actually joking. It's got kind of a blistering (laughs) sarcasm that Twitter. (laughs) That's
0: a good. Literal example to to demonstrate the concept. <laughs> exactly. So what I tell you strange.
3: Uh here, let me uh, my email's all messed up on this computer. So I can't get to the link. I set up this uh you know Gmail. Um you can do the two two step authentication, two factor authentication. Do you guys know about this? No. I know so, its
0: existence, but I ignore it.
3: If you've ever read some of the horror stories about what happens when people's Gmail accounts get hacked, you might consider setting it up. Because um, it happens. And, you know, it's not as simple as, like, calling Google up and saying, hey, someone hacked my account, change my password for me, and restore all my email. Um, like, you can lose it all. It's crazy. Um, but anyway, when I log into Gmail from a new computer, it sends me a text message with a code, and I have to add punch the code in in order to get into my mail.
2: Uh, I do not want to have to be texted every time (laughs) I want it.
3: You have to do it every time. Like, if you only use one or two computers, it's not a problem at all. But it's... Oh, it's every
2: time you use a new computer.
3: Or, yeah, they time out after 30 days. So in this case, I'm on a computer that I don't use very much. So I had to enter it again. And what happened...
2: Yeah, I do want to do that then.
3: And what happened, Jesse, is when I got that text message from you... It was the mm-hmm. exact moment that I got the text message. That was the first time I tried to log into my email and I accidentally deleted that message, <laughs> so I, I lost the code. So I couldn't log into my email for like 20 minutes.
2: That's funny. See, it's it's great. But this is uh it's 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 interesting and I definitely do want to set that up, but it's kind of it's one of those things too where like there has to be some way to not make it be the victim's responsibility. You know what I mean? Like in so much of our like criminal law, things like this, things, like, become the victim's responsibility. Like, in this case, I need to set up, like, another layer of security on my email. But, like, why is it not Gmail's responsibility such that I am not victimized in the first place, right? I mean...
3: Well, I mean, you know, you could could run your own mail server. Or you could pay for someone to run your own mail server instead of using Gmail's free service.
2: Well, see... This is a problem, man. I can't because my university email is Gmail, which I have to use for many reasons. That's true. That's uh-huh. true. So it's, you know, much like the many, you know, uh, ridiculous things and clauses or contracts, you know, it's not as simple as just saying I want to take my business elsewhere for my business is forced upon me.
3: That's true. And, you know, the university switched to Gmail because running mail server sucks. And the email yeah. sucked before they moved because it was terrible it's people. a hard job which is why everyone everyone everyone
0: uses Google now and because they actually do the best out of all the other free services of keeping all the bad stuff out
3: yeah and yeah, isn't it perfect I, and like I don't know of a service like if if there was like a five dollar a month service that was like awesome email it's like I, I would I would even think maybe that's a good idea but there, I don't even know of anything like that
0: you know, there probably is a five dollar service called awesome email right now, but it's probably <laughs> well, not very good.
3: No, there are like I know uh, of uh there are email providers that are good, but they're not like I'm hooked on Gmail, like the Gmail way to do things, you know, the labels and archiving and conversations and stuff like that. No one else seems to have copied them. It's really weird because they came in and totally did all this stuff differently than everyone else was doing email, did it way better. Everyone loves it. You'd think everyone would be copying them and they're not.
0: I've read a lot of people recently saying that. Email is a deprecated format and is useless. Yeah, they've
3: been and saying that. And that there's after, really like, no developing app. They've been saying that forever, so, though. Email will true. never go away. For what I it is, email will still be around in ten years.
0: I don't think Facebook chat's going to replace it. <laughs> Which seems to be what they're saying—that social, some social media version of it is going to replace it. But I don't—I don't really see that happening either.
1: Yeah. Oh, I'm curious. Like, so when someone's email account gets hacked, how is it actually hacked? Is it? A computer algorithm, or did someone just guess a password like uh, parents put their two children's first names in a
3: row? Uh, well, it's surprisingly here. I, I should look up. See, I should do some research on this before. Here's what I'll do: I will talk. Oh no, uninformed
2: now. opinions only. No, no, no.
3: I will talk about this now, but I'm going to make a note here to look up some some cool links to put in the post because uh, there it's... are some really there is some really good reading on this at how insanely, you know, powerful computers have gotten and how easy it is to crack passwords, basically. You know, because most people's passwords are really bad passwords. But um, how- There's also
0: the fact that a lot of the ways in which people are trying to suggest how you make a good password are easy for robot breakers to crack. Such as? Um, you do using the combination of capital and lowercase and symbols and numbers yeah. and all that. Whereas if you actually took just like three words, random words in a random order, it would take forever to figure that out. Even though they're, you know, available in the dictionary, not messed up at all.
3: Most of the advice that people give you for creating a password, you know, using, like, you know, like, you know, leet-speak letters or something like that, you know, in substitute of regular letters, make it harder for humans to remember them, but really are not much of a barrier at all for computers.
2: Well, that's that's what I'm actually interested in, because I think you're one of the few people I know who could actually explain this. Like, how, but... Anyway, back to Ian's question. That's like, but how do computers actually do this? Like, why are these things that everybody always tells you about making your password more secure and not really. Like, what's. How are they getting in there in the first place?
3: They just try millions of possibilities so that's basically it they just try like just brute
2: force yeah but they can make better.
3: they can make better guesses than that though
2: well sure but that's essentially what they're doing you guys
3: have seen like like when um oh who is it like some big popular service or website will get their passwords hacked every once in a while you know it'll happen and the password list will get out there and you know, someone will analyze it and find something like really like 70% of the people using such and such service all use about 20 passwords. Like <laughs> people just don't use a lot of, there. There, there's a large number of really common passwords that people can use. Yeah, I remember back guess. when
0: really? the web was first getting off the ground and email was a thing, you could pretty much use password and half the time be correct.
2: So what are these kind of passwords that are so common that people are using?
3: Let me see. I think it was MySpace passwords maybe they got out there. <laughs> you can imagine that one being fun. Um, an analysis of 40,000 leaked leaked MySpace passwords. I love you. ABC123. Fuck you one. <laughs> we can beep that, I guess. I don't know. It's a password. It? S- Summer07. I love you two. QWERTY one. Football one. It's apparently take a word and put one and people think it's now... Because you yeah, have you've a, added word a word that they used secret. to
0: remember, and they <laughs> added something to satisfy the requirements that they, to make it a legitimate password, and that's it.
3: Yeah. I put a link in there to an XKCD comic on this very topic. Uh, yes,
2: I was gonna... Wait, the Oatmeal also has a comic on this. They use... Oh, sorry, but the Oatmeal one made the exact point that, like, if you just had a long string of humorous words it's way easier to remember and way more secure than having to put in, like, you know, random numbers and symbols and things like that.
3: Exactly.
0: There's also the uh, the social hacking version of this. is you know, If ever, if if you ever meet anyone and they ask you certain kinds of questions, like, you should be familiar with the kind of questions that are used as questions that sites will make you give an answer to for them to send you your actual password. So, like, the street you first lived yeah, on, the name of your first car, teacher, car... <laughs> anything like that I've tried to employ that just to see if I could get away with it and it's very easy to get away with because if you structure the conversation right no one knows what you're doing and you get all this maiden names anything like that it's pretty easy
3: yeah the, the password thing though I was just checking like I switched to this method a while back too so like my email password I just typed it out and checked it's 24 characters but it's easy like it's you know it's four or five words with spaces and you know and it's easy to remember, but that makes it a really secure password, relatively speaking. But, but you also have to send me a text message after I type that. So I think I'm safe, I hope. Hey,
2: if you want to share a tip with our listeners, how does one set up this crazy uh, text message so as to protect their computer?
3: Oh, geez. It's uh, go- I mean, well, it's you know? Google, so they change it every month. But I think if you just click on, I think in the current state of Google, you know, if you just click on your little uh, profile link up in the top right corner of Google and click on account, um, one of the options is under, you know, under like where it says change your password and stuff, there's two-step verification on or off and then edit and you can turn it on. But so anyway, yeah, it is, it can be kind of a pain though, because like if you're, if you don't have your phone with you, you, you can't get into your email. You can specify a second phone number. So like, uh, my wife's phone number's on there too. So if nothing else, I can have it. text my wife's phone number but what if she's not there either you know (laughs) it's also really annoying like when you're just when you're at home if i'm on the laptop and that 30 days thing has timed out and i need to enter my password again i have to like get up and go in the other room to get my phone just to get the text message it's kind of a pain in the butt actually but you know I'll, i'll look up some horror story about what can happen when you lose you know when you're when your account gets hacked and and maybe that'll convince everyone to do it anyway
2: Cool
3: kids would do it. Yeah, I didn't give a very good explanation of how these things actually how these are actually hacked. You know, I don't do that sort of thing. <laughs> Chris does. Not until obviously. the statute of limitation <laughs> runs out. <laughs> the the bottom line is computers do it. Normal computers, like the one that you have in front of you, and they can do it very fast. And you know, unless you have a long, long password and that's actually secure. In like really secure, not, you know, fake secure. Yeah, here's you're just here's for a it.
2: follow-up question for you though. So like, people who are hacking emails, are they targeting them or are they just trying every email possible or like because it seemed like I could see something about like hacking all the emails at one company or something but I feel like if you just tried to hack like all Google emails or something like that's just way too much to even be close to useful.
3: Well, There are, I mean, obviously, individuals do get hacked. So, like, when Sarah Palin's email account gets hacked, that was probably targeted. Sure. (laughs) But in general, like, that's what all that spam on people's Windows machines are doing. You know? Like, or spam. Like, viruses and stuff. You know? Like, in the middle of the night, your Windows computer with 15 viruses are, like, you know, trying to hack all these different Gmail accounts and stuff like that all over the world and, you know, stuff like that. so. Yeah. There are
0: targeted things where you're trying to break into someone importance, personal information, or you know, corporate espionage, political intrigue, all that. But typically it's someone with a network of computers yeah. trying to brute force get a whole bunch of them. Like say you get 40,000 passwords, and then you go to Gmail or Hotmail or whatever the provider is and say, if you don't give me this amount of money or do this, then I'm going to leak all these passwords, which will break your business.
2: Oh, so it's more that guy. Because that's why I was wondering, like, in an unspecified, like, trolling for passwords, like, w- what's the end game essentially?
0: Although there is a more, I guess it's been in the news recently over the last couple of years, it's a big deal, I gather, in, like, middle schools and high schools, where gossip and backstabbing and all that stuff is pretty commonplace. Trying to ruin people socially by... You know, but middle schoolers and account, high schoolers have account. the ability
2: to hack things. I mean, like, doesn't that require yeah. pretty decent computer knowledge?
0: <laughs> a lot of people have pretty decent computer knowledge.
2: Yeah,
1: I would say is. the younger you are, the more likely you are to have yeah. pretty decent computer They're knowledge. They're teaching it in schools now. Uh,
0: yeah.
2: I mean, I get the uh, the Sunday comics joke about the kids today and their computers, but like. Is there, are there really, like, middle school and high school students running, like, hacking programs on their computers? They're not trying
0: to go after Microsoft or anything, but they can go after a, a girl they don't like or a boy they don't like.
2: Well, no, no, no. I mean, like, I, I imagine their motivations, but I just mean, like, they have the technical skills necessary to yes. be, like, yeah, that's amazing to me.
0: When I first yeah. got involved in that. It the, also like...
2: makes me feel like a very useless middle school and high school <laughs> years because I, I was nothing close to anything at that level.
0: Your petty shoplifting doesn't compare to this. Uh,
2: this well, know. to be fair, it was pretty complex shoplifting, but... Fair enough.
0: But yeah, there used to be common programs that people used to use all the time to to do it um, that would just get traded on over Napster or whatever service people were using. Um, yeah. There were a lot of ones that got really rough that used to hijack people's webcam signals and stuff like that. All sorts of stuff. And it was the same thing, like, hey, click on this link, it's really awesome, and that downloads a, a virus or a program that allows you to do it. Sure. So you'd have to convince them to actually participate in their own demise, but the whole history of computer hacking is based on getting people to do that. It's more on the social side than the technical side.
3: Yeah. yeah people people, means... people will click links.
2: Right. <laughs> I remember reading once, something along those lines, that computer hacking is much more a social than a technical thing, because it's it's, it's it basically. Yeah, it involves... Yeah, exactly. It's basically old-timey grifting.
3: Yeah. Man, it always Which kills is the conversation when I bring it home to
2: old-timey grifting.
3: <laughs> there he goes again. They
2: <laughs> called me grifty, McGriftman. dude.
3: So this other thing, this other uh, link I sent around, you guys saw this, right? It was about uh, universal preschool. Right, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the article itself, I'll, I'll put a link. The link's in the, in the chat there. Um, but anyway, here's the, you know, this is an op-ed, so you get the fact dump at the beginning. So, you know, it might surprise you to learn that only 58% of three- to five-year-old Americans are enrolled in any type of organized childcare or early education program. The number is even lower, just 51% among poor children, and less than a quarter of American kids attend preschools led by certified teachers. So children in less school-like childcare settings, like daycare or in-home care, are often looked after by caretakers earning an average of less than $10 an hour per hour. Um, And then, you know, the majority of three to five-year-old kids who have no access to high-quality, low-cost educational options. Um, 75% of middle class kindergartners Can write their own names Compared to just half of poor kindergartners And the typical middle class 5 year old Can identify all 26 letters of the alphabet On her first day of school A 5 year old living in poverty may only know 2 letters By first grade, middle class children Have double the vocabulary Of their low income peers You know, so you just like There's just these huge inequalities At a very early age um, Because we delay school You know And this kind of, it's something I've been dealing with a lot and thinking about a lot because I have a young five-year-old daughter who's currently in preschool, and next year she goes to kindergarten for the first time. So, you know, it's just, you know, kind of hit home, obviously. And, you know, reading about all of the, uh,
0: you know, you guys know the big... Can I... Go ahead. Yeah. Can I ask an establishing question? Because I'm willfully ignorant about raising children. Um... At what age, what are the age marks for going into different kinds of schooling? Just so I can get a handle on it.
3: Uh, I'm not sure the exact. Like I don't even
0: remember from when I was young what when like, I like five six. I
3: mean Chloe, I don't I don't know where if she's on the older like young. Like when end. does kindergarten usually start? Yeah, like she'll be five and a half.
0: So that's kindergarten. Yeah. Okay. So um, I don't
3: know. I don't know if that's normal. I don't know if it's six is normal. I don't know. But well, and another
1: like I've just not informed about children question. <laughs> We don't have universal preschool.
3: <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Oh, my naive friend. <laughs> <laughs> but but this has gotten kind of a lot of news lately. I think because of the whole uh, the the whole what was that movie um, about like charter schools or something or uh, you
2: know? waiting for Superman. Yes,
3: waiting for Superman. Yeah, there is at least a lot of media coverage of that movie and then a lot of people complaining about it and kind of comparing the U the, the comparison between like the u.s education system and finland or something like that and there are some huge differences it's always
0: somewhere in northern europe <laughs> yeah
3: where like finland you know the the students there just do great and they you know kill us on standardizing standardized testing and they just do better in every possible metric you know and you know they also have like universal preschool. And they also have heavily state funded education. You know, they don't have the wild inequality between schools and that, that we have here because, um, you know, it's just a very different, but like somehow that gets, you know, a lot of times that kind of stuff gets left out of the discussion. It's just like, you know, what are they doing wrong? Basically, the idea is that, you know, we don't have universal preschool. And, you know, one of the things that we went to kindergarten roundup. I don't know. Do they call it kindergarten roundup everywhere? Is that just like a weird quirk of around here? Where that sounds illegal to me. <laughs> <laughs> where they have all the parents and kids who are getting ready for that. for kindergarten to go to the go to the school. You know, it's like in the, in the evening here during the week, and you know, we, all the parents meet with the you know the principal and the different teachers, and they sort of talk about what you can expect for you know kindergarten, how to get your kid ready for kindergarten, and they gave us a list of what we can expect, and it was crazy like things that your kid needs to know before getting to kindergarten and everything on the list you know it's like they should be able they should know one to ten right like chloe at her preschool they do this thing where they sit down and write one to 100 she can write one to 100 you know, and then the, the kindergarten saying, we would like them to be able to do one to 10, you know, we would like them to be able to spell their name and like, Chloe spells all sorts of stuff. She can spell, you know, not like big words, but you know, she can spell cat. She knows my name, you know, she knows, you know, car, lots of short words. Like that's what they do at their school. Cause it's, a, she goes to preschool. They learn these things, but you know, the thing is a lot of kids don't go to preschool. It's not required. And it's really freaking expensive, too. It's a lot of money. Um, so we're talking preschool. Sorry to interrupt. Are we talking
1: private preschools? I mean, I went to preschool, but it was a public school.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know. We're talking about all of them, I guess, in general. It's just the fact that kindergart- for kids entering kindergarten, you can't really assume that they have any of these things. You know, You can't assume that they've been to any kind of preschool. Um, I mean, and the experiences that they have can vary wildly, you know, um, like we send Chloe to a Montessori school down the street and it's really good and it's reasonable, I think. And it's like $700 a month, $750 a month or something like that, which is not a small expense. And, you know, if we wanted to spend twice that, we could easily. Oh, I'm sure. Um, and I'm sure there are more affordable options, too, that are might be great. I don't know. But. It's one of the things where, you know, you, you hear all this stuff about the, our children are so important <laughs> and nothing nothing's more important than the children. And uh, to have such like wildly unequal access to education for the first five years of your life seems crazy to me, you know, and then it really it just really hits home when you're you're going to the public school and you know i'm not it's not like we have like crappy public school systems like i live in johnson county kansas we have like some of the best public schools in the country um it's a really well-off suburban area you know but still you go to the public school the kindergarten roundup, and you know it's this you know we're you know they kind of like scared us like oh my god and you and you talk to other peers that have kids that are in like first and second grade like oh yeah they were so bored during kindergarten Our kids hated kindergarten. It's so boring. You know, they have to, like, teach them how to, like, tie their shoes and all these really basic things, you know, and that's what it's all about. And, you know, that's... When you're talking about, uh, like, higher educations in the news lately about the whole doubling the student loan, which that's a whole other topic. Um, What passes for liberal liberal higher education policies in our country is don't double the rates on student loans. But, you know, just kind of, like... Reading this article, which makes the case that you know, th- if we want to be investing in education, this is what we should be doing. Like, you know, we see all these huge impacts uh on how kids do in school based on their preschool experiences. Yet we don't have, you know.
2: Yeah. Well, I was actually thinking about this exact same topic uh, a couple of days ago, but from a very different angle. Because, um, you know, I like, guess a criminologist. Like, I was kind of working on this piece talking about how, like, it's just absurd that we don't because like our criminal justice system doesn't really have any effect on crime more or less right but simply, usually because by the time people are committing uh, adult crimes that they can you know enter our criminal justice system for like there's so many bigger factors that are impacting that that like turn towards crime that the criminal justice system simply can't uh Uh, simply can't do anything to right um but it's yet it's so expensive to have our current criminal justice system with its massive imprisonment and things like that but the the ironically humorous reason we don't fund like public you know uh preschool kind of things is because well that's just too expensive right but i mean pretty much all evidence we have points to the fact that like well-funded good uh childhood education is like one of the bigger like crime deterrence or crime depressants there is um or at least one of the most consistent i should say uh you know you save so much money in the long run right but you know i mean there's all sorts of political reasons why but i just think it's uh i mean just a sad sad irony that usually the reason we're told we can't afford those programs is because uh or we can't afford those programs and it's ironically because uh the failing of not having them costs us so much money on the other end
3: yeah the same is true of healthcare, right you know we oh definitely yeah like healthcare saying, education crime, you see the same pattern where we don't want to spend the upfront costs because it's too expensive but we end up paying enormous costs on the back end
2: yeah well healthcare is actually a really good analogy for the criminal justice thing because essentially right our criminal justice system is like that er where like when something has gotten so bad it's at like it's just in the society's interest that you have to step in and say, "Okay, now we'll treat you." But it's the same thing—you basically just stabilize them and push them back out, right? You know, you don't. Again, yeah, I like the analogy.
0: There's another perspective on this that I think makes sense, both sociologically and also in terms of maybe selling it to the public a little bit. Which is one of the big things we hear about the crisis of young kids and the inequalities that appear is that parents aren't involved enough in their kids' education, especially at those really formative years. And I know, I don't know what the percentage is, but I know a lot of money and a lot of effort gets spent trying to get parents more involved. And part of this is passing the buck because school school systems are underfunded, but it also makes a lot of sense. You can go back to, even back to the 60s and the Coleman study showing that schools actually do a decent job of putting people on the same page. But during breaks, during summer vacations, you know, poor kids start to fall off. But because rich kids' parents can afford to put them in summer programs, piano lessons and athletics and all of that, they start to that's where you see them really start to divide in terms of achievement. If you focus at this early level, it, it gives you a lot of opportunities to bring families into the process in a much more coherent way and a much more uniform way to, to spread that message wider and to do a lot of good work not only in addressing the inequality that exists. But again, like we've been talking about addressing future inequalities, because you get them involved in the process and they start to contribute more and and start, you know, cultural capital is essentially on their radar. And they maybe start to close those summer gaps that appear later on.
3: Yeah. I know we, I know we've talked about this before, because I remember talking about how there was an episode, an interview we did on office hours with uh, Doug Downey about this very topic where he studied the, you know, like how much kids lose over the summer and, you know, oh, what? Right. how well schools perform. And if you can control kind of for what they lose during the summer, schools do a very good job. You know? yeah. Um So there's a link I should add to the to the post. <laughs> you um, should. It's like, you know, the answer to like what's wrong with schools is that schools actually work pretty well. We just need more of it. <laughs> That's the crisis and why our schools aren't doing better, you know, um, yeah. in a nutshell, I think. Um, but well, anyway a, yeah, There's ahead. a
1: way that I'm kind of thinking about this It's not so much why Are schools being deprived of money By people that don't value education But it's what kind of like Seemingly unrelated things happen That deprive schools of money Like how much of this gets yeah. tied into Immigration debates Of certain people don't deserve These types of services Or uh, just line-item budget cuts that don't even seem related to education, but someone has to find the money somewhere. Um, it seems whenever we discuss education, we always think that it relates directly to whether people are for or against more or less education. But in the end, this could just be like a confluence of a lot of different things sure. happening.
3: That's totally true, especially because education funding is so localized in this country, you know. Um like I said, I live in Kansas, conservative Kansas, right? But I live in a pretty nice area and we have really good schools. However, if I drive, you know, 20 miles north of here, they're not so great, you know, and you see that throughout the country, you know, because we have such local funding and local inequalities play play such a huge role in how schools get funded, as opposed to say, I don't know, like having state level funding or federal level funding where there was some kind of evening out of these, you know. The act, the access to resources that schools have, but then again, I, d- I don't know. You-, you raise a good point, though, about like how immigration and and racism, <laughs> or whatever, feed into lack of support for public spending on early education, and the same goes for healthcare and things like that, too.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, that's sort of one of the historic victories of the right over the past 30 or 40 years right that social spending has been seen as something that's done for low-income people mostly of color at the expense of middle income white america right and so it's just sort of like education just one of the many where the assumption is like oh if we spend more on education it's you know, like the uh, famous Rick Santorum slip of the tongue where he said, you know, I don't see why my money should go to some black person, you know. Kind of he,
3: said, he said "He blah person. <laughs> yes, Remember? right.
2: I'm sorry. That was a, a horrible ad hominem <laughs> attack. But you could imagine a situation where someone might say something like that.
1: No, I can't.
3: <laughs> I don't want to. <laughs> Oh, but you could contextualize it because you studied. Such a big loss. <laughs> we got stuck with Romney instead of him.
1: Man, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Ron Paul was just at UCSD <laughs> last Friday. <laughs>
3: Maybe he's gonna make his move somehow. Yeah. Well, there's all the talk about that, like about about all the Ron Paul uh, devotees, like taking over the convention and stuff like that.
0: I would love to see – I don't even care which won't party happen. it happens to, but obviously the opportunity right now is for the Republicans to see a good old-fashioned four fight at a convention. Just it's to add some
2: – They're just, it, it, they're just it, so scripted these days. It'd be a
0: disaster, but that would be, I think, a really – an eye-opening thing for a lot of the public to see how this actually works beyond the, the scripted level of it. To no, I would what love it to it. Really like. It'd be a it, beautiful –
2: it just never will, man. I mean, they just... you People are getting, like...
0: Although, out, you know, we still... Even with Romney as the presumptive nominee, there's a lot of different pockets on the on the the conservative side that are saying they're not going to play a ball. And there's even some on the Democrat side who say they won't necessarily support Obama. So, you know, the time is right for some sort of weird action. I don't think it's going to be as big as a libertarian-led fight. At the convention, but it could be interesting. Good. Maybe some free speech zones will get set up. <laughs> <laughs> Drive in those protesters like cattle. They'd be very
1: different free speech zones.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. I I mean, as a graduate student at UCSD, like, I, I was on campus on Friday when all of the Ron Paul supporters were showing up. They're not quite what you would picture in most free speech zones. Yeah. You got a, yeah, a lot of tucked in t-shirts and blue jeans. <laughs> This is unrelated, but it was the same night as our student government had one of their big spring like graduate student parties, themed the 80s. So you had a bunch of 80s-dressed graduate students rummaging around with Ron Paul supporters.
0: Well, I imagine it looks somewhat similar.
1: Yeah, sometimes That's it's hard pretty, to tell. It's mostly like the age. Yeah. Yeah. The sheer amount of American flags can <laughs> yeah. distinguish them sometimes.
3: You know what I heard from our uh, undergraduate research assistant for the Society Pages in Minnesota, last time I was up there in Minnesota? He said that they had a 90s party the previous weekend. Does this make you feel really, really old that the kids are having 90s parties these days?
1: I have a hard time thinking about what's the difference in the dress because it all kind of blurs together for me. I mean, I grew up in the 80s, but I don't know when tight rolls began and when they ended. So (laughs) (laughs) They never ended
2: wait are people not tight rolling anymore (laughs) oh this explains so much
3: no but they the kids have 90s parties i don't know ask someone younger than i guess we're too old to get it maybe that's what's scary about it you can't understand what the 90s are but to someone who grew up in the 90s but not the 80s maybe it's perfectly clear i don't know
0: It, it, it makes perfect sense what do you not understand about a 90s party that's different, significantly well, different from an 80s party or a 70s party or a sixties. Okay, party.
3: if you had to dress up for a nineties party, what would you do?
0: The most obvious thing is to look like Kurt Cobain.
3: Yeah, I guess there's
0: that there's that grunge or
3: something. That, yeah, definitely grunge. Was, there's was grunge, like a, was there's like a...
0: gangster rap, and there's yeah. to boy a certain bands. extent boy bands or like really big pop stars of the day. A gangster rap party could border a a fairly racist Oh, they already have cook-out type oh, They don't
2: border to it at all and they, <laughs>
0: Pimps and yeah. parties And people black up It's horrifying But wow. it happens quite they, a lot they,
2: they urinate on the border As they're walking past it it's, They don't go up to the border <laughs>
3: <laughs> it took me a minute to get where you were going with the urinating <laughs> like what is he talking well, I about urinating more
2: offensive word because he said like that could border racism and it's like no nah, i mean it's not even close to bordering it it's miles beyond wherever that border is <laughs> it is
1: racism we'll just call it racism <laughs> for short
2: i have a suggestion um or, or uh what's what are how are we calling this not suggestions recommendations recommendation. somehow that's the magical word i could not think of it's see i didn't go to preschool my vocabulary's never good um i got a podcast recommendation and i don't really listen to podcasts so you know big deal but uh it's called mike and tom eat snacks <laughs> it's uh Michael Ian black of like stella and the state and all sorts of uh, wonderful absurd comedy fame and Tom Cavanaugh of TV's Ed and uh, much as the name implies it is the two of these Hollywood Titans getting together uh, eating snacks and discussing them and uh, it's I mean I, you know it just sounds like the most absurd premise but it is just a delightful use of your time to listen to these two guys talk about snacks for half an hour they're both quite funny people
0: right. I can recommend something I recommended before but it got edited out um, and this is, this is, I've been into these shows for a while, and now everyone else is jumping on it, so i got to prove that I was down first. Um, if you're into cartoons, the two best cartoons that I think are out there right now are uh, Regular Show and Adventure Time, Adventure both on the cartoon network. Um, Adventure Time is about a 13-year-old boy, or an 11-year-old boy, and his 28-year-old magically-powered dog having adventures in a Candyland-like post-apocalyptic future and Regular Time is about two slackers that work in a park and the surrealist adventures they get into. They are cartoons that are extremely well done, that reference enough random topics and ideas that young and old people can find something to enjoy about it. There's enough action and movement that keeps young people involved. There's enough wittiness and intellectual, intellectualism about it to keep older people involved. So they are highly recommended.
1: I kind of want to recommend something that's not really a recommendation, but I just saw Chris have a lot of fun recommending (laughs) cartoons. Um, I I don't know how many people out there really watch bad sci-fi, but once I start watching a terrible sci-fi show, it's one of those things I just compulsively have to finish. And I I saw one that starred Luke Perry and Malcolm Jamal Warner in a post-apocalyptic world where there were no adults, but they were the oldest people there. All of the adults had died off from strange virus. And uh, it's called Jeremiah. Do not watch Jeremiah. And if saying <laughs> do not watch something encourages you to watch it, well then it's still kind of a recommendation in practice. Um,
2: now so that does beg the question though, is it uh is it like so it's obviously a bad movie if it's getting a do not watch, but is it's it... a
1: two season sci fi show which I attentively oh, watch.
2: Wow, yeah. and you watched two full seasons of it.
1: I couldn't stop myself. Like, That's, it, uh, you're my it, hero. Like, M- Malcolm Jamal Warner is a broody, kind of uncultured, rough man. And Luke Perry is a sensitive adult that has leadership <laughs> capacity. Like, no, so he's the charismatic leader. And Malcolm Jamal Warner is his closest friend. And <laughs> their goal is to try and, you know, save children. And they have, like... Gangs that they confront, they confront military. Um, I haven't really deconstructed the show from a sociological
3: <laughs> point of view, but I'd imagine there's a lot there.
1: Beautiful. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. Now, now it really. is you
2: it gotta, on the Netflix?
3: That's where I saw it. All right. There's the Amazon. You can just get get a look at the, the cover there. It's great. <laughs> so I, I don't have a uh, podcasting recommendation, a specific <laughs> podcast to recommend but i have a podcasting technique to recommend how's that a podcasting Ooh, I like tool it. if you will the um, so there's a website called huffduffer.com uh h u f f d u f f e r.com and um, what it does is basically it it's kind of like uh, you create your own podcast feed out of whatever you find so you you have a little bookmarklet that you know you save it in your bookmarks bar or wherever you save bookmarklets. And uh, when you find a page that has a link to an MP3 file on it, so a podcast page, you click on the bookmarklet and it adds it to your feed. And then you have a, your your own special podcast HuffDuffer feed. So it's, you know, HuffDuffer.com slash your name slash feed or whatever it is. I'm not sure. And then in any podcast client, you can subscribe to that, just like any other podcast. Only the only episodes that come into it are the things that you picked. So why this is cool is because... If you're the kind of person like me, like, I can't just sit at my computer and listen to stuff. Like, I don't know if people do that or not. I guess a lot of people do, but I have to listen to podcasts, you know, on my phone while I'm on the go or something. Um, And I'll never remember to, like, go to the website on my phone and listen to whatever it is I'm supposed to listen to. So, like, I'm sitting here looking at Mike and Tom Eat Snacks, and I can just pick a single episode and bookmark it and then it will in in huff duffer and then it will be in my my huff Duff feed so like the next you know i just open up my podcast client and it'll be there so you don't have to subscribe to the full feed to listen to it i can just try out an episode um so it's really handy if you like podcasting if you like listening to podcasts and you have like a podcasting app that you like but you know what do you do when you find how do you try podcasts out? Do you subscribe to the whole podcast? That kind of sucks. Cause then you end up with this long list of episodes that get delivered to you and you never listen to them. And you know, maybe there's only one you wanted to listen to anyway. So it's a really good service. I've been using it for a long time now, but, uh, might this be handy. Get
0: edited out. But I like that. This thing that you're recommending reminds me very clearly of what I assume to be a Canadian slang term for oral sex. Really? Yeah, I thought it
2: sounded kind of dirty in some way. I couldn't quite put my finger on. It's uh
3: it's it's a uh, nick- it's, yeah. I'm pretty sure it it comes from the it's a a nickname for high frequency direction direction finding, uh, which is nicknamed Huff Duff. It's a name for yeah. I, I think that's probably where it comes from.
0: So like swingers.
3: <laughs> I don't know. Let me see. I'm, I'm
0: googling the term now. It sounds I- like a, that or a dance from the 20s.
3: Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's not, not what, nothing on top of flagpole. Pretty sure it's a radio direction finding reference. That sounds more appropriate.
0: I think it's Jesse's great grandfather who huff duffed across two scribes grippers while they were being built in New York City. Oh
2: this is all about he him with the high wire huff duff.
3: Twenty three skidoo. I don't know, I'm not finding anything on uh <laughs> anything on the internet for Duffery. this. F- See, I, I think I'm I is just cute. you and your dirty mind. I'm not mind. finding
0: anything on the internet about Canadian blowjobs.
2: <laughs> oh, no. See, now I know you're wrong because there's a lot on that.
0: <laughs> I know for a fact. Like that on Facebook.
2: I could share you all the good Canadian blowjob sites I have.
0: Uh, <laughs> Can we use that through Huff Duffer? Place. My I'm Huff Duffer afraid. is all Canadian blowjob sites. I'm not afraid to get I'm...
1: into some deep stuff, too.
0: There's been a lot of talk recently about Lena Dunham's new HBO show, Girls. Some people out there may have reached fatigue on this particular thing, but I think there's a a piece of sociology that's very important to understanding girls and the controversy thereof (laughs) that we'll get into in the next episode. So just to throw that out there, the crisis of academic journals and and Lena Dunham's girls and how people are getting wrong and right. I feel like that's going to be a better
3: episode. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to just. Can we just take that clip of Chris saying that there's an important sociological angle if you want to understand girls and use that?
0: This and other entertaining and informative podcasts are available from societypages.org.